So all of that was to explain. Uh, yeah, and see, the problem is I have a desktop, and it looks a little funny at Starbucks as you come in with your desktop computer, you know. So, uh, so at any rate, uh, all of that so that you all pray for my patience with AT and T. I don't have it. Yeah, I don't have. I don't have. A, I don't have. Yeah, I don't have a landline or uh, internet service or anything. Probably, yeah. I have no idea what, you know, first when I called the automated system, they tried to tell me that it was in the house. And I'm going, it's not in my house. We haven't done anything in my house. So, anyway. Did you yell? Did you yell Did I what? Did you yell? No, I didn't yell at all. I can't imagine you yelling. Why is that hard for me to imagine, Ginger? <laughs> okay, well, let's get to our Sunday school lesson. Uh, okay, we are in Genesis chapter uh, 32, kind of in the middle of the chapter. And uh, last week we, uh, we saw Jacob as he was uh, preparing to uh, meet Esau. We talked about the fact that, uh, that on this journey from Paden Aram to the Promised Land, back to home, that he was really caught between two fears. He was caught between the fear of Laban behind him and the fear of Esau in front of him. You ever been there? <laughs> you got fears in front and fears behind. Well, that was Jacob. And, uh, and we looked at that in the first uh, 12 or so verses of the chapter. And uh, today we're going to pick it up with verse 13 as he continues his preparations to meet Esau. So let's go back and look at those first 12 verses first and <clears throat> just kind of refresh our memory. What kind of things did we talk about last week? <clears throat> Excuse me. That's this week's lesson. We haven't even gotten there yet, Hal. <laughs> You're really ahead of us here. <laughs> Right. Would you like to teach the lesson today? You obviously have this one ready. <laughs> yeah, we we referred to it. We referred ahead to it, but yeah. He did split his family. Yeah, yeah, he split everybody up. Why did he do that? One got attacked. Part of it survived. Okay, so so if Esau comes and he attacks. One part of the one part of the entourage, his family, and all his possessions and things. The other would have time to escape. Okay, why is he doing this? I mean, this is his brother coming. Why is he? I think it's <laughs> <laughs> kind of unsettling, is it, when you hear your brother's coming with an army of four hundred special forces? It kind of <laughs> it is a little unsettling. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and that, of course, is in that section where he's praying uh, the, his prayer there. And, and we talked about how Jacob's prayer is, a, at least it is to me, it's a classic example of how to pray when we're afraid. <laughs> and we talked about four aspects of that prayer. Do you remember what they were? She just mentioned one. Debbie just mentioned one is, is that, he, that he cites God's promises. He repeats to God his, his promises and his word to him was one aspect of his prayer. But what are some of the other aspects of his prayer that we mentioned last week? Okay. He's, he's, he's very penitent. He's very contrite. He, he acknowledges that, that even though he's, you know, he appears to be very great now, he has these two great companies... That he really, he came across the Jordan without anything and everything he has is from God. And so he acknowledges his, he, he acknowledges his complete dependence and reliance upon God. He's very contrite. What else? He identifies what God is saying to him. He says, of my father Abraham, of my father Isaac, and later to God. Yeah. So you're not only my parents, God, God. Yeah, yeah. Very... Very clear identification. He knows who he's talking to. 
He knows this God. He's his personal God and he's his father's God and his grandfather's God. And he knows this God's history. And so, so one of the things that's really crucial for us when we pray is really think about who we're praying to. Yeah. Who is this one we're praying to? And it can make a lot of difference in how we pray when we contemplate who it is that we're talking to. So in his invocation there, as he's invoking God, uh, he's clearly identifying who it is. Uh, and what else? There's one other element then to the prayer that we... Yeah, okay. He, he owns up to his fear, doesn't he? he? He names his fear. He owns his fear. And then asks God to deliver him from it. And I, and I was thinking how oftentimes with us, I think sometimes it's easy for us to kind of, with, with dark, ugly things like the things that we've, we're afraid of, it's, it's easy to kind of not really name them. You know, we, we don't want to kind of just come right out and say, because somehow we're afraid that if we say it, maybe it'll make it real. <laughs> or, uh, or maybe if we say it, it it's embarrassing to us to, rec- to realize and admit that we really are uh, afraid of this particular thing, whatever it is. You know? so, so I'm struck by the fact that he very clearly says to God, God, I'm scared. I think my brother might come and kill me and kill my family. And, and, all the, you know, and he, he specifically names his fear and then he says, God, would you deliver me from that? So, so I think his prayers is, is really instructive in some, thing, in some ways about how we can pray when we're afraid. I know some of you probably are never afraid, but, but some of us do struggle with fear. And so we're going to talk a lot about fear today. But what else from last week? He had a different outlook on faith. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. This is really a marked change in Jacob. He really has changed. And there's going to be another big change in Jacob that we'll get to next week. But, but, uh, but he really has been transformed and changed by this 20 years that he spent, uh, he spent out there working for Uncle Laban in, in Peyton Aram. But he's, he, he really displays a completely different attitude towards his brother. And we'll talk some more about that again today as well. That, that they, now he comes to his brother, whom he was always wanting to get the upper hand over, and now he just clearly says, I'm your servant, you're my Lord. You know? And it's just a remarkable change that's taken place in this guy. How would you know that he's not just doing that? I mean, he's just sucking up to him. I, mean, I, I would think that just to get the bodies all down, down the road, but except for his prayer. I mean, yes, in yeah. In the context of his prayer, it seems like it's yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that the, the prayer is what helps us understand this really is real. He really has, he really has uh, reached a point of recognizing that he's really nothing. Uh, and, then, and then some things we're going to see today help bear that out too, bring that out, that his, his attitude really has been transformed as we see uh, how he communicates about this gift that he's sending to Esau. So, uh, uh, it, it, of course, was kind of culturally the thing to do to, you know, to refer to somebody. But he's so explicit at it and he's, and he's so repetitive at it. I think it's pretty clear. And then in his prayer, as you say, yeah, I think that spirit kind of reflects that. But that's a, that's a good question. And some commentators raise that, uh, raise that question. So that is a good question. Yeah. You know, being humble is kind of a need to be Christian. It's kind of one of the markers, I think. We would hope so, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It really, really is. You're going to say something back here. Yeah. Well, we did talk about that, and we talked about the fact we really don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us, doesn't it? It leaves us in Jacob's position. <laughs> We're kind of in Jacob's spot. We don't really know why he's coming. Uh, we don't know, you know, I think Jacob's hope was that he would send his messengers, which we talked about last week, that he would send his messengers and tell Esau, and then Esau would just patiently wait for Jacob to arrive. But Esau doesn't do that. He seizes the initiative and he comes with 400, you know, special forces here. And uh, so, you know, that's, that's kind of intimidating. Now, as I said, uh, from Jacob's perspective, you know, he's inclined to interpret that one way, you know, and... There are actually several ways we, it could be interpreted, but Jacob in his position interprets it as 
this is not a good sign. <laughs> you know, this is not a good sign. And so uh, everything that he does over the next uh, that we talked about last week and that we're going to talk about today, all these things that he does are a reflection of this fear. Now, this almost terror that he has uh, that Esau is coming not only to kill him, but also to to kill his wives and children and everything. He's he's pretty scared. Yeah. Rick, I throw this idea out for your comment. In the past, looking at Jacob here in this situation, I thought, well, he he just lacks faith. He's got the promise. He knows God's going to prosper him. He even says it in the prayer, but he lacks faith, and so he divides up the companies and does all this stuff. But as I was reading it recently, even maybe it was this morning, I started thinking, well, maybe... Maybe it's not a lack of faith. Maybe he is not presuming upon God, and which is a different approach to it. Maybe he is stepping back and saying, "Okay, God, you promised this, but I'm willing to let you go wherever you want to go." What, you know, I'm not. Uh, we did talk about that last okay. week. Yeah, we did talk about that last week, and and we're going to face the same question today with regard to this gift that he sends. Uh, but uh, uh, my suggestion was that that I that I do think he was acting in faith uh, uh, in dividing his family uh, because the thing we talked about is it's one thing to say I'm going to believe God to protect me. It's another thing to say well I'm going to believe God to protect my family and I'm not going to do anything to protect them. And you know one is real faith and one is irresponsibility. You know. So we talked about the fact that we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't say, say about our wives, well, you know, I know the tires are bald on her car, but I'm going to let her drive to Wichita anyway because God will protect her. You know? and, and so Jacob clearly has a responsibility as the patriarch. He has a responsibility to protect the family and guard the family and watch for the family. So I think he's acting responsibly given his position, but that he is doing, still doing so in faith as we see by the nature of his prayer. That he, that he is still looking to God to be his deliverer and his and his his rescuer, but he, as the patriarch, is responsible to take whatever measures he is capable of taking to protect his family. So I think that's what he's I think that's what he's doing there. Reminds me of that uh, saying from the Civil War: "Trust in God, but keep your powder dry." Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. And I think that's uh, kind of what he's doing. Well, now you've got our interest up. We'll have to come back and find out. <laughs> that's that's two weeks from now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good question. We'll, and, we, and we'll talk about that when we get there. So, uh, yeah, here. I'm kind of curious that if I was out country, if I was traveling through this part of the country, I'd have a hard time finding my way down anywhere. You know, trying to find my way to Catamaran or whatever it is. And he comes back and he sends his messengers on ahead to see him. It's like he knew where they would be. Yeah, that's a good question. I've wondered that myself. Uh, uh, of course, he's uh, he's traveling presumably along the King's Highway here. We've talked about the King's Highway that runs north and south there through the Transjordan area, and he's presumably traveling along the King's Highway. Uh, but as to the question, how did he know that Laban was in Syria? He may he may or may not have known. He may have. Uh, he may have sent the messengers and said, you go find him, you know, and they found him in Seir. Or he may have had some communication. He may have asked fellow travelers, you know, because that's, of course, one way that they found out about things. They would ask, you know, where have you been and who do you know and that sort of thing. And, and we'll, in fact, we'll see an example of that today in today's lesson. Uh, so it, we really don't know how did he know that Laban was in, I mean, that uh, Esau was in Seir. And uh, how did he find that out? He really doesn't tell us. So. So I don't know, but presumably there was some communication. Somehow he fi- he figured that out. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's pick it up with verse thirteen then, 
And, uh, and this is uh, just at the conclusion of Jacob's prayer. And uh, this is right after he has received word that Esau is on his way with 400 men. Uh, and so he says, uh, so he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking cows and their colts. 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob, and it uh, it is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the droves, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. You shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the fort at the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. Okay? Well, so he's gotten this bad news uh, about Esau and Esau coming with his troops and uh, he's divided his his group up he's had his prayer time he's sought the Lord he's asked for God's deliverance and God's protection and then uh, uh, and then he sets about doing this other stuff it says he spends the night there now it's there's a couple things that it's interesting to me that the that the narrator Moses as he tells the story there's a couple things that he stresses here by their repetition. And one of them is that it's night and the other is that it's there. The, uh, he, he, he stresses the location because this location becomes kind of a watershed. Kind of. It really is a watershed place. No pun intended there. But it's really a watershed place in the whole history of Israel. What's going to unfold in the lesson that we talk about today and the things we talk about next week and the following week, that these are, these are, really, these are really watershed events. This is a transformative point in the life of Jacob. We talked about, we've talked about the last 20 years being transformative in his life, and that's been a long, drawn-out transformation, okay? Over a period of years, as he suffered through all the things that he suffered through and encountered all the blessings that he encountered. This was, this was, that, they, that was a long transformative process. But something is going to happen in the next eight to ten hours that is just going to radically change Jacob's life, literally, overnight. Okay? And so this place is very important. And, it, and, and as we'll see, it, it eventually gets a particular name that's very significant and very representative. And, and we'll look at all that in the, in the next couple lessons. So, this place is important. Uh, now, there is a little bit of question, as, uh, and I'll just mention it now so I don't have to come back to it. There's a little bit of question as to whether or not what happens next week actually happens on the north or the south bank of the Jabbok. Because of the way the passage reads here, this... Uh, that we're looking at today, it kind of looks like he crossed the river. Okay, but then it becomes pretty clear that really he he really spent the night on the north side of the river because we'll find after his encounter that he has in the lesson we look at next week at the end at daybreak he crosses the river again headed south. So so apparently he's kind of going back and forth across the river, getting his family across the river and getting everybody across the river. But he returns to the north bank. And he spends his he spends the, the night there on the north bank, and that's where this great encounter happens that we're going to talk about next week. So, uh, so that 
So the place is important. But the other thing that the narrator stresses, and I want to talk about today, is he stresses that it's night. You notice he mentions it actually three times in the passage that we're looking at, that it's nighttime. He spends the night there. And then later he says he spends the night there. And then he talks about him arising at night and taking his family and getting them across the river. And he's stressing that it's night. Now, when you take the things we talked about last week, the whole issue of fear, and then you take the element of it being night and you superimpose those two things or you juxtapose those things on one another, it really paints for us a pretty terrifying picture, doesn't it? Nighttime really represents kind of the terrifying points in our life. In fact, night is, has become a metaphor for us, hasn't it? Night is a, is a metaphor of of the evil that happens in our life or the, the bad things that happen in our life. It's, it, it's a metaphor for us of the fears in our life. And, and so this passage to me is really powerful because it represents these, this, this darkness in the life of Jacob. All of it kind of coalescing at this one particular crisis point where his brother is coming. He has a, he has a vulnerable family. He has... Uh, his, his wives, his children, his concubines, his servants, and then, of course, all of his possessions and his animals. He has all of this stuff, and, and it's all exposed. It's all absolutely just out there to be destroyed. And, and, then, uh, and then, ultimately, he's facing this great fear in the middle of the night. So he's, so he's, he's here at the, at the, at the Jabbok, and Esau is coming, and it's night, and and it's it's apparent. And you know, nowadays we you know because of modern warfare and that sort of thing, we do war at night, and you know we use our funny glasses and all that sort of thing, and we can fight. But but back in that day, they really didn't fight at night very often. Occasionally, you'll see a case in scripture where there was a night battle, but but generally speaking, they would fight during daylight, and that was generally the case. And in ancient warfare. And so, uh, for example, when Jacob arises, it says at the night and he escorts his family across the river. Uh, the point that's going on there, what's going on is he wants to get his family across the river during the night when it's safe, because he doesn't want them to be crossing the river when Esau comes. OK, that's not the time. You know, you've got a major you know, you've got your, all your family and all your animals and and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of animals or whatever that he's that he's trying to get across the river. And that would be just a terrible time to have Esau show up with his 400 guys. So the idea is he's using the cover of night to get all of his family across the river so at least they've made it that far, okay? So, so the nighttime then represents this time of fear and this time of uncertainty in our lives. And, you know, and, and, and I don't know about you all, I know there have been, there've been nights in my life, and I'm sure probably for most of you, there are nights when you just wake up in the middle of the night and it's dark and you're, you know, you're just kind of alone there. I mean, your spouse may be laying beside you in the bed, but they're asleep and you're just there. And, and, and then all those fears just start to kind of wash over you. You know, whatever it is. You know, we, we mentioned some of them last week, you know, but we, we all have fears that we have to confront. We have fears that we have to struggle with. You know, it may be, something in a relationship like what Jacob has here. It's his relationship with his brother and, and the fear of where that's going and what that's going to turn into. And so we have fears about relationships and we have fears about our jobs and we have fears about financing and we have fears about our families and our kids and our, and our children and their well-being. And you, know, you all know what it's like to to go to bed at night and know one of your kids is out there on the highway, you know, driving through the late night or whatever, you know, and you, you put the phone there beside the bed. You know, I've gotten those midnight, you know, two o'clock in the morning phone calls, you know. Fortunately, it wasn't an accident, you know. It was my son from the middle of nowhere in southwest, southeast New Mexico saying, Dad, I'm out here, you know, 50 miles 
west of El Paso and the transmission just went out of the car. It's two o'clock in the morning. I'm going, what do I do? <laughs> you, know? you know, but uh, but but those fears sometimes somehow in the in the night they become so vivid and they become so powerful in our lives and they become so real in our lives. Well. He sent them. He sent them the previous. He sent them before the night. Yeah, he sent them before the night. I I assume that he got them across the river, that they spent the night, and then that they were to proceed in daylight. I I I, I can't imagine you'd try to herd, uh, you know, uh, 220 sheep in in the middle of the night. I can't imagine. That'd be kind of like herding cats. But would that also delay well, uh, yeah, we're going to get to the, we're going to get to the gift here in a minute. I want to talk about this issue about the night and the fear, but we are going to get to this gift and talk about it, and that is uh, one of the interesting scenarios. But um, the, just going back and, and and talking about this this thing about about uh, fear in uh, probably nobody in Scripture struggled with the issue of fear more than David. And so, over and over and over again in the Psalms, you encounter this, this issue of David wrestling with his fears. And, uh, uh, and, and he does so in association with darkness. One, you know, turn over to Psalm 139, and that's, of course, a psalm that we're all very familiar with. Uh, it's a very well-known psalm. But, but he says something in here that's very striking to me. In uh, Psalm 139, he says... He says in verse 11, he says, uh, If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. You see, it says it's that night is a, is a metaphor for our fears. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's that point in our lives when, when our fears are just overwhelming us. And it, and it represents night. And I, I, don't know, I don't know what it is about night that's so so much of a metaphor for our fear, but it's just that you can't see anything at night. Yeah, and we, I think we, I think it's, it's, that, it's that we think there's something out there that's a peril to us, but we can't see it. And we live under this illusion that if I could see it, I could handle it. Well, of course, we can't, but, but we live under that illusion, but it's even worse when we can't see it, okay? So there's something about darkness and fear. Those two things just go together. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here in verse 11. He says, I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. But then notice what he says. He says, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are light to you. I'll never forget the first time this verse was pointed out to me. I was I was struggling with it. It's just an incredibly dark situation in my life, and this was probably close to 40 years ago, 35, 40 years ago. But I was just struggling with this just incredibly dark situation. I just and this young brother he hadn't he hadn't known the Lord for more than six months. Came up to me and he quoted this verse to me. He said, he said, well the Darkness is not dark to him. And the night is as bright as the day. And I thought, man, that's exactly what I need to know. And, and Jacob, he's in this situation and it's dark and it's night and he doesn't know where Esau is and he doesn't know what Esau's motives are. He doesn't know what Esau's intentions are. And he's got all these people that he loves and that he cares for and that he's pr- trying to protect and he can't imagine what's going to happen to them. And all of these things are just overwhelming him in the darkness. And at that moment, it's in those moments that we need to remember that with the Lord, Darkness and light are alike to him. And the night is as bright as the day to him. And, and when we struggle with all that fear and that uncertainty that comes with the darkness, 
We just got to remember that with God, there is no such thing as darkness. And when, when my situation and my fears are as dark as they can possibly be and I can't see past the end of my nose, at that moment, my darkness is as bright as the day to the Lord. And He sees it all and He knows it all and He's in control of it all and He is present with me and He is watching over me. And we're going to see this with Jacob, aren't we, next week? Here's a guy who is, thinks he's all alone. You know, his family, everybody else is across the river and he's all alone there on the north bank of the Jabbok. And it's all dark and he thinks he's all alone. And then he encounters his greatest adversary. And it is Esau. But ultimately what we find out is Jacob's longest night ends in a daybreak of blessing. And that's because, even though he didn't know it, the presence of God was with him. So, so the narrator stresses to us that it's, that it's night, that this is, this is that time in Jacob's life when everything is dark. And, and he wants us to, you know, I know I'm maybe belaboring this a little bit, but I, but I think God wants us, before we move on to what happens next week and the week after that, to stop and pause and think about the hour of darkness. Because we all have those hours in our lives. We look around at our situation. We look at our children. We look at our jobs. We look at our finances. We look at our society. We look at our, our possessions. We look at all kinds of things that, that create fear. And if we're going to understand how great God's deliverance is... To some degree, we're going to have to take some time and own the fear, like Jacob does. Some, we're going to have to say, okay, God, I'm really scared. I'm scared for my kids. I'm scared for my job. I'm scared for my finance. I'm scared for my culture. I'm scared for my country. I'm scared for this relationship. Yeah. And really own those things and understand that and confess to God, God, this is my night. This is my dark time. And I need to know that you, with whom the darkness is as bright as the day, are with me and are present with me at this hour. Yeah, Rick. I'm wondering. Oh. <laughs> Two Ricks. Both wanted <laughs> Go ahead. This one. <laughs> well, uh, I'm wondering whether Jacob wanted to be alone to spare his family. I've wrestled with that question. Why did Jacob, Jacob go back and spend the night alone on the north side of the Jabbok? And, and maybe that's the reason. Maybe he didn't want, want his family to see what he was going through. Another possibility was maybe he wanted to pray some more. Uh, you know, maybe he just felt like, I've got to keep working this one, you know. Uh, the other possibility is, uh, you know, that's a dangerous place. He's in a dangerous place. Not only from Esau, but just from, you know, the whole environment. It's dangerous. So maybe he was just trying to guard the rear, you know. And so maybe he thought by being there. Uh, and actually, I, I tend to kind of think maybe that's what he's doing, which explains what then happens in the next, in, in the next part of the passage. But... Uh, so I, I really don't know for sure, but I, I tend to think maybe his reason for going back and staying on the north bank was to protect the rear uh, from whatever might happen. But 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 I don't know, Rick. Mm-hmm. But even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and it was before I thought, yeah, I, I kind of thought about that in relation to the point of God. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's another passage that that makes me think of. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember which one it is here. Uh, oh, yeah. Psalm 46. Uh, go over to Psalm 46. Uh, see, I, I talked about Psalm 139 and Rick just mentioned uh, Psalm 23 there. And now we're talking about Psalm 46. And it's just all through the Psalms. Is the psalmist struggled with this issue of fear, and uh, but in Psalm uh, 46 he says, uh, "God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at, at its swelling pride." Well, put yourself there. He says, God is my refuge. I will not fear. You know, I I don't know how many of you watched videos of the tsunami in Japan a couple weeks ago. It's just overwhelming. You know, I stood there and watched one. I, I think I think maybe Peggy is one that you posted a link to or whatever, but I watched one that went on for like seven minutes or something of this, you know, of this wave coming in. And obviously whoever was filming it was up high in a building, but you could just see these entire two and three story buildings being completely overwhelmed by this wave. And it just keeps coming and it keeps coming and it keeps coming. And, that, you know, when I read this, uh, this week, as I read this verse this week, I thought about the tsunami. I thought about the earthquake and the tsunami and, 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 and all the devastation. What would have been your reaction in all of that? You know, it's terrifying. What does the psalmist say? He says, though the earth should change and the roaring sea, and he says, the mountains be lifted up and cast into the sea. He says, even all that happens. He says, God is my refuge and I will not be afraid. And one of the things that strikes me about that is, is that God's presence with us does not mean that some of the things we fear will not happen. You know, what we like to think is, well, if I trust God, then nothing bad will ever happen in my life, right? But we know that's not true, unless you're health, wealth, and prosperity nut. But, but we know that's not true. But the issue is not, will bad things happen to good people? Because bad things do happen to good people. But the issue is, when those things happen, is God my refuge? And the person whose God is his refuge, then does not need to fear, even though the earth should change and the mountains slip into the sea. Well, uh, no, go ahead. It's another great one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And make us sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so. It's nighttime. And, but before he goes to bed, and actually he never makes it to bed tonight, you know, but before he goes back and tries to settle down, he, he arranges this gift and he sends off this present to, uh, to Esau. And, you know, we're, we're so accustomed to thinking of Jacob as this schemer, you know, that it's very easy to think of this gift as another one of Jacob's schemes. But I think that would be a mistake. Okay, and I'll explain to you why here in a minute. But but he arranges this gift. Anybody count how many of them there are? How many animals are in there? 
five groups. I didn't count all the animals. Okay, there's, there's five groups, probably five droves, as he classifies them by droves. 580 animals, assuming that each one of the of the uh, milking camels, uh, it says, and their colts, assuming each one had a colt, uh, that it would come to 580 animals, okay? And uh, Hal slipped out here before I got to address his, uh, his point. But you can imagine, you know, here's Esau and he's charging forward and he's got his 400 guys with him and he's coming, you know, to meet, Esau, uh, to meet Jacob. And we don't really know what his motives or his intentions are, but he's coming to meet Jacob. And then he starts meeting this drove after drove after drove of hundreds of animals, you know, and uh, I really don't think this was part of Jacob's strategy, but you can imagine the breaks that it put on Esau <laughs> because these guys are spread out. You know, he's put a space between them. So first comes the 200 uh, goats, uh, 200 female goats and 20 male goats. So 220 goats. OK. And so he's dealing with 220 goats running around him here and he's going, who are these? And he's asking the servant, you know, and he's questioning, he's getting information. OK. And then he finds out they're his. They've been given to him. OK. So now he's responsible for these goats. No, no sooner does he dispatch with them and start to move again. And he encounters the next drove. And this one is sheep. OK. And there's 220 sheep. OK. Well, you know, so he asks the questions and he gets the answers and he finds out, you know, okay, and so he dispatches with those and then he encounters the camels, okay? We begin to get a picture. Jacob's pretty rich. Now, we don't know what percentage of this, uh, this present uh, uh, is of his actual wealth. But if you remember back when Melchizedek, in, or excuse me, when Abraham encountered Melchizedek, and he, how much did he give to Melchizedek? He gave 10%, okay? And that was a typical tribute that someone would give in that time, okay? We talked all about tributes in, in the, in the uh, uh, suzerain vassal covenants and stuff, and we talked about tributes and how oftentimes the percentage of a tribute was 10%. So I, I tend to assume that the gift that he's giving to Esau is about 10% of his wealth, which means, you know, if he's got 30 camels that he gives away, he's probably got 300 camels. That, that, that's, you know... Now, that's a lot of hay, folks. <laughs> and camels, even one camel represented a good deal of wealth. So this guy's really very quite wealthy. But, he's, but Esau's encountering these onslaught of animals coming at him. And every time he, gets, he runs into one, then he's got to stop and deal with it, dispatch it. And then moves, try to move again, and he tries to move again, and he encounters the next one, okay? So this is what Esau is going to be facing the next day. And it really is pretty overwhelming to him, as, as, as we'll see. He's kind of blown away by it all. But, so, Jacob's intention is to send this gift, okay? And the question arises then, well, what, is, what is Jacob's purpose? Why is he doing this? Well, in, in verse uh, 21, uh, he tells us why. And, and, and the way he says it is really quite significant. Uh, he says, uh, let me find my place here. He says, uh, so you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. Uh, let me just mention uh, before I talk about his reason. Uh, you'll notice that twice he mentions Twice the narrator mentions that Jacob instructed his servants to say, Jacob is behind us. Okay. So as Esau is going to be encountering these droves the next day, every time he encounters the droves, the servants are to say after they said, well, these are from Jacob and they're for you as a present. And Jacob is behind us. And so five, at least five times and maybe more, depending on how the droves are broken down, at least five times Esau hears these words. Behold, Jacob is behind us. 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 What's the point? And don't say Jacob is behind us. When I read that, I thought the proverb, the gift given in secrets to do anger. And I just looked it up to make sure I had it right. Proverbs 24? 21, yeah. 21. 21. 21. 21. I don't know if Jacob knows that principle or is thinking along that line and thinking, I mean, it can't hurt. Maybe yeah. That is exactly what he's thinking. Oh, uh, yeah, I have no doubt that's what he's thinking. But what is Esau thinking? What is the point of constantly telling Esau Jacob is behind us? He's not 
hurting, it's not hiding, it's not going away. Here, when you move your family, you don't put your animals in front, you make them come behind because it's kind of dusty dirty. Yeah. So if your animals are out front, He's coming, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I do think that's exactly what he's trying to do. He, Jacob is trying to say to Esau, listen, he's moving forward on this thing. He's moving forward. He's coming home. And he's coming home regardless. And, and in a sense, what Jacob is doing is he's taking the initiative back from Esau. Esau took the initiative from, from Jacob and now Jacob is taking the initiative back he's overwhelming his brother with all these gifts and like I said I don't know if that's part of his strategy but he's overwhelming his brother with all these gifts but what he wants his brother to know is I'm coming I'm coming I'm not waiting up there for you I'm not passive about this thing but I am actively pursuing reconciliation and so so then he explains to us what his, in verse 21, then what his intentions were. He says, for he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Now, what's significant here is that Jacob uses three words in his description here of the present and what's going on. He uses three words that have cultic significance. And when I say cultic significance, you remember that we've talked about the word cultic and we think of cults we think of you know some kind of weird fanatic religious group okay but in, in theological terms and you're reading in commentaries and things like that they use the term cultic they're just referring to a religious system okay and so when we speak of things in the bible being of cultic significance they are significance in relief in relationship to the religious system i.e the levitical law okay so remember the children of israel are in the wilderness and they are reading this story and there are three words that are used here that Jacob uses that have particular significance to the Levitical sacrificial system. And the first one is the word gift or present. And we, he trans, they translate it as a gift or a present here because in this case it's a man, one man giving to another man. But actually it's the same word that's used for offering. It's the identical Hebrew word that's used clear back in Genesis chapter 4 about the offerings of Cain and Abel to God. So when he uses the word gift or present here, He's using a word that in the minds of the Jews, of the Israelites, the children of Israel, as they're reading this in the wilderness, just having come from Mount Sinai, just having come from the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, he uses a word here that is associated with the idea of making an offering. And then he says, perhaps I will appease him. The word there is the word from which oftentimes we translate the word atonement. He is making an offering that he hopes will atone. What is, he, what is Jacob hoping to atone for? Yeah, what he did in the past. What he did to his brother. How he stole the blessing. And so he is seeking an atone. He is seeking to atone. Okay? And then the last word there is perhaps he will accept me. And the... And, and that's actually a, a translation of, a, of an idiom, of a Hebrew idiom means he will lift up my face. That's such a precious picture of being accepted. You know, when, you're, when your children come to you and they've done something wrong and they're feeling bad and their head is down and you just reach down and you grab, put your hand under their chin and you just gently lift the chin up and you look them in the eye and you say you're forgiven. And all three of those terms are related to the Levitical system. And so there is some sense in which what Jacob is doing here in sending this gift, and I do think he is doing, as, as Jim suggested, uh, Proverbs tells us, that, that a gift makes the way. It prepares the way with our adversary. And I think very clearly he's doing it. We'll see Jacob do that again when he sends a gift to the prime minister of Egypt, who he later finds out is his own son. Okay, but he's preparing a way. Okay, he's he's trying to move anger out of the way, and that's what he's wanting to do. He's wanting to atone for his sin. He's wanting to atone for what he had done wrong to his brother by offering this offering, 
which significantly in chapter 33, Jacob refers to as the blessing. This offering, this gift that he gives to Esau, he later refers to as the blessing. And so there's a sense in which in giving it in Jacob's mind, what he's thinking is, I'm returning to Esau the blessing I have stolen. Now, he's not actually returning the blessing and he's not returning the birthright because he cannot do that. That's impossible because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So says Paul in Romans chapter 11 in specific reference to this blessing and this calling. Okay. And he's talking about the children of Israel. He's talking about the blessing and calling of God being irrevocable. And so there's no way that there's no way that Jacob can actually give back the blessing and the birthright that he has. But but he is in his heart. He's saying, I am sorry. And I want to be reconciled. Now, what is the significance of all of this? Well, it's quite simple. In in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says. If you know that your brother has something against you. While you are at the altar, if you remember that your brother has something against you, you get up from the altar and you go and you make it right with your brother. And then you come back to the altar. And I don't think it's a I don't think it's a coincidence that Jacob's wrestling with the angel of the Lord does not happen until after he has sent away this gift. I think that God has been waiting to meet Jacob at the Jabbok River only after Jacob has taken the initiative to be reconciled to his brother. And, and I just wonder how many times in our lives as Christians... God is unable to do what he wants to do in our lives because we've refused to be reconciled to somebody we've wronged. And the striking thing here about Esau is he takes the initiative and he says, I've sinned against my brother and I'm going to make it right. And when he makes it, even before it's made right, when he takes the initiative to make it right, then Jacob is finally in a place to encounter the angel of the Lord in a wrestling match. And when dawn breaks, it will be a, a daybreak of blessing. Okay? Well, that's all for today. We'll go on next week.